text for our meditation comes from the Gospel of Luke. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So far the text. You may be seated. I love how God works. I love that I and you too can hear and read a story. I usually like to call that an account. Uh, year after year, I still find new insights into it, and that's what's happened to me this year. I prepared this sermon on the Transfiguration, which, of course, is a, an account that many of us, most of us, have heard many times before. At this time uh, that this takes place, Jesus' ministry is in full swings. Things are moving along rather quickly. He has been teaching in the synagogue. He's been doing miraculous miracles. Um, feeding the 4,000, the 5,000, raising the dead, driving out demons. Kind of a busy agenda. He's helping lepers, he calmed a storm, and he is drawing great crowds to his side to listen to him as he teaches. The Pharisees were scrutinizing every step and every word. He had become very popular and a very controversial public figure. He had sent out the 12 apostles to cure diseases and proclaim the kingdom of God. Herod is absolutely perplexed at all this sudden energy that's going on. The Jewish officials, they're certainly more than concerned. And the general populace is in awe of what they're hearing regarding Jesus Christ. Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ of God. And Jesus has called his followers to obey them, him and follow, pick, take the cross and follow him. I think you see a sense of momentum building here. And now we read about this mountaintop experience with Peter and John and James, Moses and Elijah, Jesus and God the Father. It's always been an amazing account. With Jesus' glory revealed and the conversations with ancient men of God. It's a holy, it's a miraculous story that we might not even try to fully digest because... Quite honestly, it's probably beyond, beyond our comprehension of all that's going on there. We're told some of it. I'm sure not all of it. We try to understand how Jesus is transformed so that we see a glimpse of that spectacular glory while still being Jesus. We wonder what it's like to be engulfed in this, in this uh, cloud and hearing the voice of God the Father and understanding indeed that it was God speaking. We wait for the disciples' doubt to go away, and we want our doubts to vanish too. We're thankful for the encouragement and the mission, the mission-powering strength that comes from this conversation, not just to the disciples, but also for us. And what Jesus must have received, after all, it said they were talking with him about his upcoming ordeal, the salvation of the world. And they certainly would see that soon. While embracing the wonder on this mountaintop experience, I see its extreme importance, at least for me. It's not only just a simple few humans there get a glimpse of the glory of God and Jesus and, and observe Moses and Elijah there miraculously. It's not only that God gives us a reminder that his law, by having 
Moses there is something we, uh, we should ponder and is still pertinent. Or a reminder of his prophecies by having Elijah there. The transfiguration of Christ, quite honestly, is a milestone event. It's the prelude to the fulfillment of the promised Savior. God is using this to help us connect the dots all the way back to the first promise made in the Garden of Eden, that he would indeed provide a Savior for us. God the Father has enveloped these men in the cloud as if to wrap his arms around them, as if to guard them from any distraction while he tells them, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is the high point of the transfiguration story. Everything has been building up to this cloud in that message, and I've always considered this story primarily from the perspective of Peter and James and John, and even Jesus, for indeed they were strengthened, bolstered by this spectacular event. But now I also see just a peek from God, the Father's perspective. He spoke directly to us at the beginning of Christ's ministry and speaks again as this ministry is about to reach its conclusion. Jesus is fulfilling the great redemption for all humankind. He is fulfilling the promise made to Adam and Eve, the promise passed on through many, many generations, many trials and certainly much tribulation. The plan of salvation is now coming to fruition. God the Father wants us to wake up and pay attention. He reiterates that Jesus indeed is his son. He also is now compelled to tell us what we are to do. And that is, listen to him. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. God's message was crystal clear. Jesus is this prophet. The fulfillment of his promise is messenger to the world. God is putting an end to, Jesus, to the disciples' doubts and ours by telling us to trust Jesus' words. Listen to Jesus' words, because quite honestly, all of it is true. Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer and die for the sins of the world, that he'd be rejected and betrayed, that he would rise from the dead. He taught forgiveness for the unforgivable, love for the unlovable, to give thanks in all manners. All of that's true. His words are trustworthy, and we should listen to him. At the beginning of his ministry, at his baptism, God tells us humans, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now at the end of Jesus' ministry is near, the promised salvation is about to be fulfilled, and God the Father wants us to know, this is my beloved son, listen to him. These are the last words God the Father directly gives us. Now, we have a tendency to place a lot of emphasis on our last words, and yes, sometimes that means that those last words are shared at bedside, bidding farewell to a loved one. But even day in and day out, our last words are a way to punctuate, to enforce earlier conversation. Maybe perhaps when our kids walk out the door with the car keys, we might say, don't text and drive. Or remember to call when you get there. Or we might say, bye, honey, I love you. Very often, our closing remarks reflect that which we think is of utmost importance. As I contemplated the Father's last words, listened to Jesus, I wondered, what were Jesus' last words? This is how Matthew closes his gospel 
with a clear direction from the heart Jesus, the very one to whom we are to listen. He writes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, as the words of Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus' last words, we call it the Great Commission or the Great Command. Go, make disciples worldwide. I want to tell you that sometimes when we talk about sharing the gospel, telling others about Jesus, and we remember the last words of Matthew here, we think we have to go and evangelize. I guess we'll put that in quotes. And that, quite honestly, can sometimes feel and look a little uncomfortable. Maybe we feel to share that because we're commanded to do so. And maybe it feels a little awkward, perhaps like a sales pitch. But quite honestly, it doesn't have to be that way. Let me tell you a story about a college business ethics class. The professor raised the question, is it ever okay to lie? Is it ever ethical to lie? The students discussed, oh, maybe when we're playing cards, you want to trick people into believing how good a hand you have. All you euchre players know that for sure. Or maybe, maybe you don't want to be totally honest with Aunt Betty when she asks if you uh, like her favorite dress or what do you think about her favorite dress and quite honestly you think it's kind of ugly. Um, That's an awkward situation. And then one of the students, a waitress, said uh, this. If a customer asks her to recommend a favorite item from the menu... She always says the steak entree. Her boss wants her to say that because he makes more money off that particular item, and quite honestly, the waitress may get a bigger bigger tip. Now, many of her classmates thought this was okay, a common practice, until one spoke up. What are you talking about? If someone asked for your honest opinion, you would intentionally lie just so they would buy more expensive meal? Have you ever even eaten a steak? The waitress said not. After more discussion, nobody in the class could agree that the lie was okay, not even the waitress. Maybe this is just a little bit like it is for some of us when we share the gospel, not that we're lying. People feel compelled, whatever, to open their mouth, maybe say things because we're commanded to do so. But you see, maybe our hearts are not involved in that particular issue. And maybe, like the waitress, you say what you're supposed to say, even if Jesus isn't our favorite thing in life. Wouldn't it be a whole lot different if you're a waitress who truly loves that steak entree because you've had it and it really is your favorite? What a difference when you become an evangelist for that steak on your own accord. You tell everybody, oh, hands down, it's the steak. It's juicy, it's delicious, it's cooked perfectly. You really ought to try it. Because you've had it, and you know what it is. And there's no compulsion here. It just flows out of you. You're excited about it because you've tasted and seen that it is good. You see, you can't fake evangelism. People figure that out real quick. 
And if telling about Jesus is uncomfortable for you, take heart. Follow Jesus' lead and show his love. Find your own way. Find your own words. Words that can convey how your life has been in fact impacted by the life of Jesus Christ through God's word. Pray that the Spirit would lead you to the right timing and the right words and pray for those with whom you are sharing. Jesus desires that each of us do our own part in showing and telling. I know this is probably news to you, but Lutherans are not known to be overly demonstrative. We hold our cards pretty close to our chest, don't we? Some of us have to stretch just a little bit to, well, get emotional about sharing the gospel. Not fake emotion, not obedient emotion, if there is such a thing, but genuine emotion. The story of the transformation sparks three emotions to help us get on our way to telling the good news. That is wonder, fear, I'm talking about godly fear, and hope. We want to be in wonder, be in awe, just like Peter, James, and John, when they experience God's glory, his strength, his majesty, and his plan, his power. We want to be motivated to share the gospel for a a genuine exchange. An exchange that may quite honestly call for urgency. He's coming back, you know, and he's judging the earth. It might be easy to be a little cavalier about embracing the task at hand, but we must not forget that our business as a church is to bring others to Jesus Christ. And finally, we need to live as his people of hope. Peter, James, and John. And yes, Jesus left that mountaintop with hope and more fortitude from the Heavenly Father. Incidentally, who will not leave us in any situation and who will come again and who will see promises fulfilled? This is our constant theme in life. He's coming, he's coming quickly, and we ought to be about his work showing and telling God's love. We don't want to be a spokesman going out there half-hearted with a sales pitch. We want each of us to be able to tell about Jesus because we know him personally. We can recommend him unequivocally. He's our hands-down favorite. If you don't know him like that, you may want to consider doing something different with what you've always done. It's not hard to open your Bibles at home pray together with others, and help people who are not just like you. Maybe volunteer at the Franklin Avenue Mission or nursing home, or adopt a missionary and pray for his or her work. You see, sometimes it starts by showing. People will be drawn to your actions a whole lot quicker than they will to your words. It's just the way life is. Last Saturday morning, there was a women's retreat here. I guess they call them mini-retreats. Anyway, my wife was there, and the topic was Bible journaling and prayer journaling. It was for women, so I wasn't there. But my wife came home with lots of great details about that event. Bible or prayer journaling essentially involves some type of visual reminder of the passage that you're studying and the prayers that you're offering to others. It can be very simple, like underlining notes, or more complex, like drawing pictures and attaching little messages to those pictures, little bits of scripture. 
While this type of journaling is often viewed as beneficial to the individual, they also discussed ways for using it to reach out to others. And Pam was excited to share this story. One woman who had been using, using a card to keep track of the prayers that she had been praying for her hairdresser, who happened to be Lebanese. When it was filled in, she took it to him and explained that she had been praying for him. He was deeply touched. He says, nobody's ever prayed for me before. He displays his prayer journal, that card that she made out for him with all those little messages and things she's been praying for. He displays it on his mirror behind his workstation that others can see. He came to believe in Jesus Christ, and he's had his children baptized. The woman who prayed for this man and his family was genuinely committed to sharing Jesus Christ. And in an unusual way, a very gentle way, through prayer. Her efforts were that simple, and God filled in the rest. We hear a powerful story of Jesus Christ on the mountain. He's going radiantly white. He's surrounded by Moses and Elijah. Wow. What does this story tell us about our mission? It's that by knowing Jesus and listening to his words, we are empowered to show and tell his story to all we meet, near and far. And God will fill in the rest. And everybody said, Amen. And now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Jesus the Christ. Amen.